Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 18th, 2019, and this is episode 2549 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. I've just had a weekend and got a lot done. I'll even tell you a little bit about some of the things I got done this weekend uh, when we get into the main topic today. Here's some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. Uh, I am going to have another great quote of the day for you, this one from John Locke. I'm going to have another call out for Life Hacks. I want to put the Life Hacks show together soon, but uh, I could use a little more material. Uh, thoughts on my first shot at the uh, new thing we've been talking about today, crack key hydroponics, and why I'll probably, a little bit more on why I probably will use a pump for something I'll be doing in my greenhouse going into uh, winter and spring. Um, I have a question on making awesome brisket. I'll tell you the simple solution. Don't overthink it. It's not as hard as people make it out to be. Uh, thoughts on vermicomposting and, and kind of why I haven't talked a lot about it over the years, I guess. I talk about what I do. And I'll talk about why I don't do it here and why I'm hoping to do it this coming year. Um, question on how keto has affected my mead, wine, etc., you know, fuel-making hobby. Uh, question on growing commercial hops with hydroponics. And it's not really a question, it's an article about this. And yeah, to me, it's a lesson in economic shifts um, or economic evolution, I guess. And uh, kind of answer the question, like, just because you can do something, should you? And sometimes that answer has a lot more to do with, well, where are we at in time? And what has already been done? Uh, I think this is actually going to be a lot more interesting, you might think, by the topic itself when we get to it. There's another change to your 401k options, and this one's not any better than the last one, which you guys may have forgotten about. I'll remind you of and kind of show you where this is all headed. Um, and then a question on higher education. And I've beat up on the school system a lot, but this is more like... How dependent are we on higher education for research? Uh, because all the grants and government money that go into funding, you know, basic research. Uh, what, what's that all about? Uh, and a question on building a new home, or maybe not. Uh, it's a situation where the guy's got a place, he's got the land, he owns the land. The dwelling on it is probably not worth anything. It uh, wants a better dwelling and considering his options, and we'll talk about all of that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Western Botanicals. Um, I have always tried to turn to herbs first whenever I can. And for anything from a tonic to dealing with uh, an acute issue or something like that, I'm not opposed to modern medicine. I'm really not. There are things that modern medicine does for us that are an incredible blessing, but I do believe that most of the things that we end up taking pharmaceuticals for, we probably could at least try an herbal supplement first. And in many instances, they're kinder, they're gentler, they're safer, and they're just as, if not more, effective. If you want to find the right herbal supplements for your needs or make your own herbal formulas or just get some advice on what you're looking for, check out Western Botanicals where they have real people that really care about you. These guys have been sponsoring the show for eight years. An eight-year relationship is an eternity in the world of podcasting. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. And remember, they give away their premium membership for free to anybody that's an MSB member. Next up today, bulkammo.com. So bulk ammo is where I go to get my ammo now, unless I'm reloading it, right? And I do that because by the time I go to the store, deal with stupid people, deal with crowds, not have them have what I'm looking for. I could have already ordered it on Western Botanicals, forgot about it, and like a day later or two, 
knock, knock, knock on the door. I don't have a door they can knock on anymore. They just change that one up. That's been back in the Arkansas days in that office they would drop stuff off at. Uh, it'll be out there sitting out just inside my gate. Uh, the, the people that deliver my stuff have finally figured out that my dogs will eat them. And uh, to obey the signs, and they usually give me a text or a call on the number. And next thing I know, I'm like, what the hell's out there now? I didn't remember. Oh, yeah, my ammo. That's just how quick they are. They have all the common calibers, everything you're probably looking for, at better pricing in the store and a hell of a lot more convenient. Check them out at BulkAmmo.com. And, yes, they do a discount for MSB members. On the MSB thing, the MSB is on sale. I promised you last week it's on sale, it's on sale, it's on sale. 30 bucks a year, 30 bucks a year forever. If you become a member during the sale, you keep that rate as long as you stay a member. Now, if you cancel and you want to come back like a year later, no, no, it doesn't work that way. But as long as you stay a member, uh, if you don't cancel or if you get canceled because of like a payment screw up or something, you get in touch with right away, I will honor that for the life of it. You know what's coming? Thanksgiving's coming. Instead of being the guy that's putting everything on sale for Thanksgiving during Thanksgiving when you have better things to do like being with your family and eating turkey, I'm going to put it on sale a week in advance. The turkey sale, that's right. Turkey turkey and bowling means three, right? That's what they call when you get three strikes in a row, they call that a turkey. So I thought we would do turkey for three $10 bills, right? So 30 bucks, you get a membership that's got to be worth a couple hundred dollars. I built this thing from the very beginning, guys. If you use the discounts and your money comes back to you, you basically pay nothing for it and you support the show, please consider becoming a member today. You can sign up online. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. When you sign up, use the discount code TURKEY, T-U-R-K-E-Y. I've had people before when I put on sale, I went there and it was full price. Yes, because you have to use the discount code. The discount code is TURKEY. should be easy to remember this time of year, TURKEY. If you need to know how to spell TURKEY, you probably shouldn't be joining MSB. You should probably go learn how to spell TURKEY first. All right, with that, let's get on into this. Let's start out with our quote of the day today. John Locke is, in many ways, considered the father of liberalism and not the liberal mental disorder that people have uh, today, uh, but classic liberalism, which basically was the state should do as little as possible and leave people the hell alone. And the only role of the state was to preserve the rights of the individual so they're not victimized by other individuals. That's it. That's, that's classic liberalism. That's how amazing how far that has fallen from where we call liberalism today. John said one time, all mankind, being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. So a very simple principle to live by. It is basically the foundation of the non-aggression principle. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. I brought this quote on today to talk about something though, that I heard somebody recently on another podcast say. It was an anarchist-type podcast, and the guest, really smart guy. But sometimes smart people outthink themselves. And the host said something to the effect of, you know, we should treat everybody equally or everybody should be equal. And the guest said, well, not everybody is equal. And the host said, well, let me clarify. Of course, not everybody's equal. Not everybody has the same ability. Some people are really gifted as one thing, some in the other. What I mean is the way we treat people, in effect, should be equal. And he said, but it's not going to ever happen. You can't tell me that someone that's worth a million dollars doesn't have a better legal defense when they're accused of the exact same crime under the exact same circumstances as somebody that doesn't have a pot to piss in. And somebody that's worth a hundred million dollars could probably just make the whole problem go away by writing a check to somebody. And it's always going to be that way. We're never going to be equal. So we should stop saying it. This is where the guest is wrong. Okay, People will never, if we're going to take it to a religious um, 
standpoint, never 100% follow the Ten Commandments, largely which I agree with. If I don't, I am not a believer in the classic sense. So the ones that say like how you're supposed to worship God or whatever, I that's for you because it's your religion, and I do not disparage you of it at all. Uh, as a deist, I don't see God that way. But the, the, the as the Ten Commandments pertain to other people, not stealing, not murdering, etc., not lying. Human beings are fallible, and we will never live up to the standard of the law. That's the entire message of Christianity anyway. That does not mean that we should say, oh, well, screw it. We are not going to hold that ideal as something we strive for. And when it comes to treating people equally, the first thing we have to accept is that people are not equal in ability. They are not equal in resources. They are not equal in intelligence. They're not equal in countless numbers of ways. I was going to say millions, but it's probably more than that. Who knows how many ways we could figure out to judge people against each other and, and demonstrate inequality. The only place we can be equal with people is how we treat them in regard to what individuals have a right to. And what we have a right to is our property or our possessions. The things we've rightfully acquired. No one has a right to take those things from us. We have a right to our life, to live as we see fit. We have a right to pursue our dreams up to the point that we interfere with somebody else's ability through force or coercion. This is what we have. And the entire point of anarchism, which this man ascribed himself to be as an anarchist, is to strive for that which we know we can never fully achieve, but yet we do so because it is the right thing that we ought to do, rather than the wrong that we ought to not do, in the words of John Locke. Just a good place to get started out on this week. All right, so let's um, let's dig into uh, things for this week. In fact, with that, I want to just throw out another quick call out for life hacks. Life hacks are things that you can do to make things in your life just a little bit easier. So since I'm going to talk about aquaponics, and I'm so, geez, I can't get that right, can I? Hydroponics. Well, that's what four years of doing something similar but different will do to you. Hydroponics. So once you know about something like Kratky hydroponics, Jack, not aquaponics, you know that all you really need is a container of suitable size and that you can then, with a little bit of fertilizer, grow plants. And this can be incredibly inexpensive because you might use two or three cents or less worth, worth of fertilizer to do this with. And as you're doing that, you might realize, hey, you know, um, Those those milk jugs, or I'm sorry, not milk jugs, because milk jugs are not what I say to use. The uh, Arizona iced tea jugs or the apple juice jugs that Jack recommends that I store water in or two-liter soda bottles that Jack recommends that I store water in, those could be used for containers to grow all different types of plants with cracky aquaponics. So now that I've got all my water stored up and I've got so much water, my wife's like, don't store any more water the upstairs closet is going to collapse under weight. You have enough water. Stop now. I could take those same jugs and just drill a little hole in the top of them and, or even just use some material uh, as a collar in the jug itself and not even cut it. And then I could grow plants in those or old water bottles. That would be a life hack. That's just one of you know dozens and dozens of different life hacks. There's all types of life hacks and they make our life just a little bit better. And these are things that as we, we 
you know, get, grow a little older and a little wiser and we learn more as we go, we build up these ways of living our own individual lives. And then, you know, these are the types of things where people go, well, what, where'd you come up with that? And you go, well, I heard about it from so-and-so or I thought of it myself. And then other people are like, wow, I should do that too. And there's so many things in the world like that. Well, one of the things we have with the power of the Internet and something like the survival podcast communities, what we call collective intelligence. So share your life hacks with me. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Please don't call your life hacks in to the think line. If you do, I might end up using them on a show. But for the life hack show, my idea here is I'm just going to read through all these emails by all these people and give a little bit of commentary and go on. I want to I want to give you guys like 50 amazing life hacks in 50 minutes. That's how quick I want this to be. And I can't do that if I'm putting together an audio show based on phone calls. So email me with your life hacks. Remember, always, whenever you email people, put TSPC in the subject line. But in this case, put TSPC life hack in the subject line. I'll, that way, even if I don't have time to read it right now, I'll just throw it in the folder. And when I get ready to do this show, hopefully next week, I'm hoping to do this Tuesday next week if I have enough hacks. And uh, I'll be able to include that. And uh, we'll be able to have just a really great show going into the holiday of ways to make our lives a little bit better with life hacks. Again, make sure you put TSPC life hacks in the subject line. Get that email to me at the email address that is, you know, the catch-all email address for everything I do, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Um, then I want to give you a little bit on Crack Key Aquaponics. So I started uh, two Crack Key containers this weekend. I used a five-gallon uh, containers to do it. These are the uh, Commander series. They sell them at Home Depot and Lowe's. Uh, they're the, the the totes that you see all the time that, that I've recommended a lot over the years in larger sizes, the 17 and 27 gallon versions. They're black with the yellow lid, with the recessed lid where they stack really nicely on each other and they have kind of drain holes on the side if they get water on them. Those. Um, I was at Lowe's last weekend on Friday night. And I uh, dropped my grandkids off to get to, to, to drop them off with their mother. I ran by Lowe's to get some of the, something to do crack key with. And I selected these guys, brought them home, uh, drilled some holes in them, and popped some plants in them. I also mixed up the fertilizer that I bought, which is the Master Blend Solid Fertilizer. And I took a cue from one of our listeners to mix up a concentrate. And by a concentrate, what I mean is that instead of mixing up, you know, X amount of grams to make five gallons and making five gallons, mix up a gallon of a concentrate that then you can dilute. I decided instead of doing something crazy like 256 to 1, which is what some of the prepared solutions are, let's just try like 32 to 1. So that would be you use a half a cup to make a gallon. And so I tried to do that. And I put a gallon of water and the right amount of the Epsom salts and the magnesium, whatever it is, and or, um, the other calcium, whatever the hell it is, the other third one, and the master blend itself in, uh, which is like a 2 to 1 ratio of the three. And I put it in a pot. And I put it on the stove, and I got it up to a really, really hot temperature so it would all dissolve, and it didn't all dissolve. So I doubled it to make it basically a 16 to 1, one cup to the gallon, which still would be pretty good. Still couldn't get every single bit of it to dissolve. And so I went ahead and used it uh, as it was. I made sure I like stirred the concentrate up really good before I took a cup out of it. That way there was some suspended uh, in it, kind of equal, and used it. It'll probably work just fine. And when I mixed that with the, the full, it was about four and a half gallons uh, is what it took to, to make one of those five-gallon containers have the right amount of uh, fertilizer fluid in it for hydro. Um, 
it did all dissolve at that point. You could tell that it works. So I'll use this stuff, but the same guy recommended a liquid product that I've ordered. I'm waiting for it to come. And I really feel looking at just my first experience with using a solid fertilizer, I may just come down on the side of liquid concentrates. It just may be easier uh, to go that route, and we'll see. By the way, the, the company he recommended for the liquid uh, concentrate seems to be a pretty awesome company. Um, right out of the gate, I'm, I'm tempted to get in touch with them for an MSB discount, but I'm going to wait till I actually use the product. That's what I try to do with like everything I bring you guys. I actually want to use it. I want to see it. I want to I touch it. I want to smell it. I want to see it actually work. And if it works as good as they say it does, I'm going to hit them up. And I, you know, I think most of you guys will be going into you. If you're going to you know, take on doing some hydro, uh, I'll be more of a spring thing anyway. So we have time to work on that. So I just want to give you that update. Uh, it does have me looking at everything in my greenhouse tree model now and thinking I will probably run a system using a single small pump in a cascading series of pipes, which was my original plan to redo an aquaponic system in that greenhouse. The more I look at hydro and how much space it'll save me and how much less I'll have to screw with, the more I, I come up with that idea. And when I look at it, running it on a small pump and doing a series of pipes that cascade one down to the next, really, really simple. Um, the way I'll design it, if the pump fails, it could go days before it would really be a big deal because, well... We'll design cracky concepts into uh, a moving fluid system, and uh, I think it'll just be a better way to go. It'll be something you have to wait to see. So uh, just kind of getting you caught up on what my weekend was, that's some of what went on. As always, not as much happened as I had hoped, but I do feel like at least our household's back in to order after the workshop. So first email of the show, this comes from Jerry. Jerry says, I've always loved beef brisket, but have never had tried to cook it. Uh, Costco has whole briskets, but they're a big piece of meat and over 50 bucks. I have access to a pellet smoker and a roaster oven. Have you ever done a whole brisket before? I'm assuming it could go on the smoker a few hours and then in the roaster overnight. From what I've read on the Internet, this should be a viable option, but I would like a second opinion, Jerry. Um, Man, brisket is one of those things that if you ask 10 people that are really good at making brisket what to do, they'll give you 10 different uh, answers if they if they get specific as to what's your finishing temperature and how long does it take you to get there and all these other things and like trying to cook for like a competition or something like that. I have my view of that. Have I ever made a whole brisket? A few times. <laughs> Just a few times. Um, but what I want to try to do, because if I try to explain the entire process of making like a brisket perfectly on an audio show, you might get a little bit hungry and a lot bored. It, it, it can get really deep. I can do a whole show how to cook a brisket. So let's do like the kind of down and dirty method you just described with just a few little caveats to try to give us the best chance of success. So what we need to understand about the brisket is brisket is actually several muscles, but the two primary ones uh, that we can kind of cut out once we're carving a brisket after it's cooked, or sometimes before brisket's cooked, these are already taken apart. Uh, I don't know what the anatomical names of them are, but we call them the point and the flat. The point is the smaller piece that kind of sits on the top in the natural way that a brisket sits when you're cooking it. And the flat is the longer, flatter, uniform, rectangular, sort of kind of shaped piece that you get sliced brisket from. And the point is what we get chopped brisket from. The real important thing with both of those is they're very, very heavily worked group of muscles. Um, basically, it's the chest muscle. That's what the brisket is, the chest muscle of the cow. And if you think about your chest muscle, your chest muscle doesn't get a lot of work. It really doesn't. Like, 
even if you do a lot of picking stuff up and all, our chest muscles are not heavily worked because we walk on two legs. We're bipeds. Well, if you're a quadruped, if you think about playing horsey and, you know, like you play with your kids or your grandkids on the floor and walking around like you're on all fours, those, those muscles get a lot of work. So you got a thousand, two thousand pound animal somewhere in that range that spent its whole life using those muscles. So you end up muscles with dense fiber, lots of connective tissue, and you end up with a lot of fat. That equals flavor, but it requires a certain approach to cooking. And that approach to cooking is low and slow. That's what we want to do. Again, you can have debates with this. Somewhere between 190 to even over 200 degrees is the final temperature that we want to cook a brisket to. And somebody's going to flip their shit and tell me, no, it's 183, whatever. Right? The general consensus is somewhere in that 190 to 205 degree temperature zone. But it's not like we want to get there and hold it there for a long time. If we get to that temperature really quickly, we've done something wrong. Because it's a big piece of meat to move to that temperature fast anyway. We want to get there really, really slowly. We want to finish at that temperature. And getting into all the technicals of how to get exactly and bang on nail that and get the perfect brisket is difficult. The good news is good brisket's easy. Good brisket's easy, and you have access to a smoker. I don't care if it's a pellet smoker. I don't care if it's a foil pouch on a gas grill off to one side. I don't care if it's an offset box smoker. I don't care if it's an electric smoker, pellet smoker. doesn't matter. Bradley, uh, what have you. Smoke makes brisket better. And instead of getting too fancy, especially your first couple cooks with a brisket, with rub, follow the credo they have in South Texas, and that is the smoke is the sauce, or the smoke is the seasoning. And a well-smoked brisket, when you cut it, will have a smoke ring. You'll have like a pink ring around the gray meat because we're not going to have a rare brisket. There's a way to do that with sous vide, but we're not going there today. Okay, That's actually a pretty cool thing to do. And what you described is basically what to do. Smoke it. Try to keep your temperature, internal temperature, somewhere below 160 while smoking. And the longer you smoke, the more smoke flavor you'll get. And the longer you can keep that temperature low while you're doing that, the more smoke you can actually get onto and into the meat. Then we're going to wrap it up in foil. I like to use three layers of foil. And I like to try to fantasize that I'm going to wrap this stuff up in the foil so well that no juice is going to seep out of the foil. I've never done it. It's never going to happen. So the next thing we want to do is whatever we put it in, If you're going to use like one of the Oster Roasters, which is what it sounds like you're talking about, that's fine. Um, I'm a bigger fan of those for like a mid-level bake temperature, like 325 or something for a turkey. They're great for that. You can use them on a lower setting of around 225 degrees. That's the oven temperature I use. We call this the Texas Cheat. But you're going to want to come up with some sort of a rack that you can fit into your roaster that's going to hold that brisket a few inches up off the bottom for a couple reasons, especially with the Oster Roaster. The Oster Roaster, even though they have great temperature control, they get pretty hot at the surface. So if you have that laying flat on that surface, you're going to overheat the bottom of the brisket and get some scorching. It'll still work, but it won't be as good. So you want that rack of some sort of improvised device to hold it off of that surface so we're heating with the air temperature around it. The other thing is, like I said, that foil's going to leak. There's a lot of fat. And a lot of connective tissue in a brisket. We want to render a lot of that out of it. We don't want to render it all out or it'll be dry, but we're, a lot of it is going to render out in a low and slow cook. So what I prefer to do is use my oven. 
I set it to 225 degrees, simple bake setting, even though I have a convection roast and convection bake setting, so much as 225, bake, and wrap it in three layers of foil and take like a turkey roasting pan where they have that rack that holds the, the, the thing up or improvise something to do that, a cooling rack, whatever. Just get it, you know, you can make a couple balls of aluminum foil about the same size, put it on four sides and take a cooling rack and sit it in a, 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 a roasting pan. Just get it up so it's not sitting in a whole pile of grease. Some of the fluid's going to stay inside. It's going to cause a basting, but some of it's going to weep out. Let it weep out. Put it in the oven, 225 degrees, and you want to cook for your internal temperature over 190 degrees. It'll take a long time to get there. At 225, you almost, let me say almost, can't overcook it. When it's fork tender, it's done. And I can give you like a dozen different rubs. I can give you some that have a little bit of heat with a little bit of cayenne and some with a little sweet with a little bit of brown sugar. But salt, pepper, and garlic for a rub never steers you wrong. My go-to rub for brisket, salt, pepper, garlic, paprika in equal amounts, and then one half that amount of cumin. And it's a fantastic brisket rub. It's a little unconventional, but it works really well. That's all there is to it. And if I wanted to get, I, I, I'm fighting myself from getting really, really specific here. Like finish at 196 degrees and start with a lower oven temperature and bring it up over time. All these little secrets. Your first cook, just smoke it, wrap it, cook it at 225 to 250 degrees. Use a good internal thermometer, one that you can either have like a wire coming out of your oven, right? Or use, uh, I've really become a, a fan of the meter thermometers. Those work great. And look for that temperature to be somewhere around 195, 196 degrees to finish at. And again, if you have the time to pay attention, there's nothing wrong with, let's say, setting your oven to 190 degrees and letting that meat really slowly get up to about 185. And then if you stall, you can go up to like the 225 range. The easy set and forget it, 225. Cook it for four to six hours that way. It'll be tender. You're not going to screw it up. Give it a shot, Jerry. And... uh Actually, stay away from the forums and the YouTube videos and all till you cook a couple of them. Just go ahead and do it. You're not going to mess it up. It's going to be okay. Because if you start listening to people on forums and YouTube and all about brisket before you've done a couple, you will get into analysis paralysis. There are a million little things you can do to tweak it. Some of them are cool. You will come to your own eventually. But a, but a simple smoke, wrap, finish in the oven, go for it. You'll love it. Uh, I bet you, even if you cook it, no rub at all. No salt, no pepper, no garlic, no nothing. It'll still be good, but don't do that. Salt and pepper, at least. All right, so next up from Nate in Spokane. Nate says, I searched the archives and didn't find any articles related to worm bins or vermicomposting. Do you have any experience with this or thoughts on it? Uh, just how much better are worm castings than traditional compost? Thanks, Nate. I don't think worm castings are, in, a sense, in essence, better than other forms of compost. I, I don't. I think worms are great for composting for people with typical American households in ways that are difficult to do any other way. So when we do compost, there's a bunch of different ways to do it, but what we really want to do is take a whole bunch of material with a good ratio of, of, of carbon and nitrogen and put it together, and that will generate heat as it breaks down. And then we want to turn it every so often. There's multiple ways to do this. There's a really quick method. There's a much more low and slow long-term method. But basically, to do it right, we need all the material that's going to be composted 
all in one place and all started at the same time because we're using a hot compost methodology. And if you want to think about baking a cake, imagine that you were going to bake a cake. So you mixed up your cake batter and you put 10% of it in the oven at 350 degrees and you waited 10 minutes and you took it out and you put 10% more of your cake batter in. You put it back in for 10 minutes and you took it out. Then you put 25% of your cake batter in and you put it back in for 10 minutes and you took it out. And you kept doing that until you got all of the cake batter in and then you let it bake until it looked like it was done. You would probably end up with a really shitty cake with raw spots and overcooked spots and just it would never be right. When you try to do a hot compost and you're constantly adding to it because generally we have, you know, a small bucket of waste from our kitchens a week, you end up with a situation that's a lot like that. Now, there's a way to mitigate that, and that's just the pile-up method. Don't turn it. Just keep adding it. Just keep adding it. And when whatever little bin or I use garbage cans with a uh, four-inch holy pipe in the middle of them or whatever you use to do this, when it's full, just stop and start piling it up in a new pile. Another way to get around that is to use chickens. Just have a pit. Keep throwing shit in it. Let the chickens pick through it. And when the pit ends up full, start a new pit. And just leave it alone and don't touch it. Cover it once it's, you know, wet it down, cover it, and wait six months, and you end up with a pretty good compost. It won't be perfect. There might be some imperfections in it, but it'll be okay. If you turn it, you can control it. You can actually develop composts that are tailor-made towards certain things and certain objectives. But most of us don't have time for that, nor do we have a good cubic yard of material to start with at one time. This is where worms excel. By having a worm bin, we just take that little, you know, maybe we have a little bucket, little mini bucket, like a one-gallon collector on our countertops, and once every day or every other day, we dump our waste in the worm bin. And the worms are happy to eat it and poop, and that's what worm castings are. They're worm poop. And we use composting worms for that, and we'll get two yields from that. One will be what we call worm tea, which will be a liquid affluent that will come out, that will drain out the bottom of our worm bin, And that can be diluted with water at about 15 to 1, and it's a really good biological inoculant to our soil. It's not really that high in fertility by itself, but it's a great inoculum of uh, biology for the soil life. The other option that we have then is we take those castings and we use them like any other form of compost or fertilizer. They are relatively high in nitrogen. They're okay in uh, phosphorus and potassium. They're not, in my opinion, they are not any better than any decent compost. But they solve the problem of dealing with small amounts of material at a time over time. Because the worms process it through digestion rather than a hot breakdown that requires a lot of material in one place under a set set of circumstances. So for the busy household, once we have our worm bin, we just add to it and take from it. Why don't you hear a lot about it from me? Because I've tried to set up worm bins here, and no matter how I've done it up till now, and I've only tried so hard, uh, within a couple weeks, I get invasion of the fire ants. The fire ants go in, they eat all the food, they kill all the worms, they take over and build a nest. And I've gotten to the point where I use chickens. I use chickens for my composting. If the ants go in there, chickens eat some ants. It's not a big deal. So that's why you haven't heard me talk about it. My hope is in my aviary redesign this winter, um, to have some place where I can either suspend or go over top of some water, a small worm farm where the ants can't get to. And I'm going to give that one more try because I would like to have this option as well. But so far, 
I've built four worm bins, and none of them made it more than a month before they were invaded by ants. And that is just part of kind of, I guess, doing business in, in north central Texas. Um, people come here and they ask, they see an ant and they go, is that a fire ant? And yeah, well, you didn't look at it. They're all fire ants. They may not be, but it's just assumed that they are. And when you're on my property, we have lots of fire ants. So there you go on that. Uh, next up, Bob says, have you, has your mead making hobby suffered from your enthusiasm for keto? And how do you personally balance the two? Thanks, Bob. Um, Bob, the answer is sort of, kind of yes. Basically, I, I I don't have to make as much cider or mead or fuel as I used to. I can make a lot less, and I can age it a lot longer because I'm consuming a lot less alcohol, and probably far more along the lines of the amount of alcohol that a healthy adult should consume. So it's much easier now for me to make a gallon of mead, end up with five bottles of mead, and really age that mead out. So I make less, and I make better quality. And that's my basics for it. Now, for those that aren't familiar with what he's talking about, about how there's a conflict there with keto, I want to quickly dispel this. I did a video on it in my keto series on YouTube where I explain this in depth. But it is true that if you drink alcohol in a pure form, like a distillate, like a whiskey, it will not spike your blood sugar directly. Not directly, anyway. And if you're drinking a well-attenuated meat or a dry wine, all you have to do is count the carbs like any other thing that you would eat on a keto or low-carb diet of any kind, and you won't spike your blood sugar. If you have a 4-ounce glass or 5-ounce glass of a dry Chardonnay, you're going to have about 5 grams of carbohydrate. When you're limited to 20, you're giving up other food for that, but you can do it. And the direct result of your blood sugar levels is not a big deal. However... Alcohol is a toxin. There is no doubt that alcohol is a poison. If you drink enough alcohol, it will kill you. Alcohol is a drug, and alcohol is a drug, and alcohol as a drug is far more dangerous than cannabis. I have yet to hear of anybody that OD'd and killed themselves on cannabis. I'm sure with concentrates, if you went out of your way to try to do it, there probably is a way you could, but I think you'd be high as a kite and passed out before it happened. We have people die from direct and long-term alcohol poisoning all the time. We know alcohol is a toxin. So does our body. So the problem for you, especially when not so much when you're trying to maintain a weight, but when you are trying to lose weight, significant, I'm not going to say large, but even moderate amounts of alcohol will shut down your ability to burn fat because it will make your body incapable of processing glucose until the alcohol is gone. Because it works like this. You're, you have alcohol in your system. Your liver and your entire you know, internal bodily intelligence goes, there's a poison on board. The poison must be eliminated. So your liver dedicates all its resources to dealing with the alcohol, to metabolizing the alcohol until it's gone. And then there's kind of like a recovery period after that. And how long is the recovery period? How much did you drink? And you could drink a relatively small amount of alcohol every hour that's enough to like, you know, you have one drink, one and a half drinks an hour, something like that, and you won't get drunk. Okay, fine. Your liver can deal with that. But if you do that over like six or seven hours and have six or seven drinks over six or seven hours, that entire block of time, your body cannot, cannot, infinity, cannot burn glucose, cannot burn sugar during that period of time. 
and it can't burn fat either. It can't deal with anything but the alcohol. Now, if you drink a drink over two hours, there's a time where it can't and a time where it can't. So you want to blow your liver up? Fructose, fruit sugar, is processed the same way alcohol is and can do the same level of damage to your liver as alcohol. So like one of the worst things you can drink for your liver and for your weight and for your health in general is something like a screwdriver. High sugar orange juice mixed with, with, with pure ethyl alcohol in the form of vodka. It's awful. It, it just it, it does incredible damage. One of my favorite drinks, I have to do extremely in moderation now, like once every quarter in old-fashioned because all the sugar that's added to an old-fashioned. Um, so I just, right now, well, I'm still in weight loss mode. And so when I say weight loss mode, I have lost 36 pounds since I started this. I have about close to another 15 to go, 15 to 20 pounds to go, depending on when I get down to like 198, I'm going to look at my body fat and make a determination, do I need to go further or not? It's going to be somewhere in that 190-something range where I'll say that's it. And at that point, I can have a little bit more alcohol because now all I have to do is make sure I'm taking care of myself. But while I want to burn fat, the drinking has to be extremely limited. Because you will, if you drink like a typical, what's considered like recreational drinking day, like in America, you know, four or five drinks, you're not burning fat for the next 24 hours. You're not. Now, you might not put any weight on, but you're not burning it. Metabolically, you can't. Your body has to go through a full system of recovery before it can go back to harvesting and burning fat cells. The only way that changes is when you're being completely unhealthy with alcohol and your body begins to break down and die. Like an old, skinny, dying, broke-down, cirrhotic liver alcoholic. And you don't want to be that. So it has made me moderate my consumption and therefore moderate the amount that I have to make to consume a significant amount of what I do consume from my own efforts. Um, next up, DR sent me this, and it is an article on Cosmos Magazine, and it's something else to grow hydroponically. And I'm not going to read the article to you, but I will link in the show notes. And what they're doing is this is, I think, British Columbia or Alberta, one of the Canadian provinces. They're growing hops hydroponically indoors. And this is a climate where it is just too cold and too short a growing season to grow hops. And they're mainly marketing the hops to breweries that are selling microbrews to locals because they're local microbrews that are saying they're local hops, which people find to be really cool. And it talks about the challenges with hydro um, and um, hop growing. It also talks about the challenges of growing hops without hydro in some climates where it's really difficult to do because of photo period. And how the new technology they have and the ability to have lights that move and how big a hops plant is and how much light it really takes. They can take these warehouses that have been abandoned and they can put these lighting solutions in now. They have the technology they can grow hops really, really efficiently and get really great yields and actually obtain a financial return that's very, very good growing hops hydroponically. Now, I have mixed emotions on this. I am not an environmental purist, and there are people that think the minute you do hydro, aquaponics, any type of indoor growing, microgreens even, you're just evil and you're harming the planet, and that we should only be building and growing in soil. That's everything is about the soil, and I'm all for that. But there are certain things that just do better, and you get a huge return for the energy input 
grown hydroponically or aquaponically, especially indoors with a controlled environment. But I want you to think about, if you've never seen what hops look like, they grow really tall, 10, 12 feet or more tall. And they grow them in these fields with these trellising systems. And then you get a huge yield because you have this massive vine, and you get yield of the hop flower all up because the flower is what you take. It's actually very similar in some ways uh, to cannabis. In fact, the fact that they can do this is 100% owed to, like I've said already, with hydro and indoor growing, we owe, no matter how you feel about cannabis, we owe a massive debt to cannabis growers. All of the cutting-edge technology that's been developed has been developed with cannabis because it's such a high-dollar crop They could afford the research and the equipment and everything. As more and more places have legalized it, the, the cost of the equipment has come down. And as more and more places have gotten better at it, old equipment that still works is being sold on the secondary market in large quantities so that the, the, the growers can bring in the latest state-of-the-art. And that second-degree level equipment is still really, really good. So a lot of these, and I don't know, it doesn't say in this article, but a lot of these places that are turning into indoor hydroponic farms are actually buying, you know, the last generation of equipment from the cannabis growers who are upgrading. Because they're going to go in and they'll buy a full warehouse worth in one shot. So this is not something you're necessarily going to find pieces and parts on eBay, though you might find some of it. So all of that makes this more doable. What also makes it more doable is all of the empty buildings we have. Because even though I'm not an environmental eco-Nazi, if you said, Jack, my plan is, I'm going to build a giant building to grow hops in, I would say, that is so ecologically irresponsible that it makes no sense. The energy that will go into the construction of that building, especially now with all the additional restrictions, like it, it's so much more expensive and hard to build a building today than it was even 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, which is how old some of these buildings are. It makes no sense. But if you say there's an abandoned warehouse over there, and I'm going to turn it into a hydro farm or an aquaponics farm, that makes perfect sense. The energy sink is there. It's already happened. It's probably been paid back a thousand times already. You have a now empty building. And I think there's going to be a lot more indoor agriculture Indoor growing of many things because we have so many buildings that are sitting there vacant. And we honestly have two choices. Figure out something to do with them or hit them with a wrecking ball and tear them down. Years and years ago, long before I started TSP, I rode the train from Chicago to the airport for the experience. I quickly regretted it and worried that I might not arrive at the airport alive. It was an interesting experience. I'll leave it at that. There were some looks at me like, what are you doing on this train in, in some parts of the journey? But there was a part of that journey that went through the complete slums of Chicago. And I didn't see a human. I didn't see a single person through some of that journey. I saw a sea of buildings, mostly old industrial buildings. And it looked like I'm sure there's people there somewhere. I didn't see a person. And it was almost like looking to the horizon at like something from a dystopian film. There's enough buildings in that one place, probably to grow food for all of Chicago, that are empty. And I think that what we're really seeing with this article and with this type of technology is the fact that we have put resources into things that are no longer viable. And while 
using those resources to build those things today, to do the things we want to do with them today, may not make sense. Retrofitting makes a ton of sense. What could you do with some of the abandoned malls in America? There's one mall that I think of when I think about this that was like built almost like a cross, more like an X. And the center atrium, they had a huge thing of ficus trees. And a huge glass roof. It was a two-story, three-story mall. And the glass was three stories high. And I'm like, man, when this thing fails, the greenhouse that that is, it's plumbed, it's got fountains, and I'm like, oh my God. I could probably grow enough food to feed a small town in just that atrium. And then you got the whole rest of the mall to work with. Like, I think these are things, and like, how could that be repurposed to actually revitalize a mall with something along the lines of ecotourism? What if like the center of that was a hydro farm? Maybe even an aquaculture-based farm. So we've got aquaculture and aquaponics and hydro all working not together but all in the same space. We can't put hydro and we can't put hydro and aquaponics together because we'll poison the fish with the fertilizer. But we had that system. And I mean, you'd have to see it to understand what I'm talking about. And then one wing of that was like a farmer's market wing. And another wing of that was more like a craft fair wing. Like, I think there's... And then one was maybe more like a bunch of farm-to-table restaurants that dealt directly with the vendors that sell maybe on weekends and certain times only. And then the others, maybe a little more conventional mall-like. Because that mall that I'm talking about is dying. It's dying. They put in one of these outdoor shopping centers like right next to it, like where you have all the same stores, but it's all outside and they're all spaced out. It's more like, it looks like a small town, even though it's all a bunch of big big box stores and little niche stores as well. So everybody shops there now. There is a huge movie theater as part of that mall. I think that movie theater, the food court, and a few anchor stores are what's keeping that mall alive. That mall is going to die very, very soon. And everything's going to go to this new shopping center they call the Highlands. And it's it's so close to dying right now already. Well, what do we do with these malls that are dying? Wouldn't something like I just described be better than being some ecological Puritan and saying, oh, but that's not regenerative? Regeneration needs to not just be our soils. That's That's got to be the keystone. But it's also our people, our very souls of existence. And we can grow food very ecologically sound using these technologies. And we can grow in soil. All those ficus trees, they're in soil. There's all types of things that can be done. We could open up these roofs. We could put in uh, skylighting and reduce the amount of light necessary from grow lights. So where it's supplemental instead of 100% dependent. There's so much we could be doing. How many farms could we put on the roofs of buildings that are doing other things? And the more we can do this, the more we can grow nutrient-dense food. Because none of this makes sense for growing grains. But you can bet it makes sense for growing fruits and vegetables. It really does. Anyway, let's take another one. And I'll put a link to the uh, article in the show notes. So next up, and this one comes in from Brian. Brian says, um, your 401k may soon have fewer investment choices, but that's a good thing. Sometimes less is more. That's not what he says. That's the headline and the tagline. Translation is what Brian says. Brian says, translation, people are too stupid to invest their money. I'd be mad as hell if my retirement account started reducing my choices. Well, get ready to be mad, Brian, if you have a 401k, because it's going to happen. 
So the 401k is being used more and more to funnel your money where the people in power think your money needs to go. So long ago, I'm talking back when I had a regular job, before I was even in charge of anything, when I was just a regular working guy like everybody else, I remember my 401k had about 50 different options in it of things that I could do, different mutual funds and classes of funds. And there was definitely a, what we call a dollar fund. There was also a money market fund, and there was a, a generic kind of government bond fund. Uh, there were multiple levels of risk tolerance for growth markets and income markets and uh, fixed income markets and bond markets, et cetera. It was just a ton of stuff. Was it everything that would be available to me with something I ran myself like an IRA? No. But it was almost the case that you could make that anything you really wanted to do, sure, I might have chosen a different brand, but there was a fund that fit what any investor, especially to the investor's uh, affluency level of a 401k could ever want to do. They began to shrink going through the 90s and into the early 2000s. But one thing that remained constant was there was either a money market fund or a U.S. dollar fund available. And what that meant is if you really thought shit was going to go sideways in a handbasket, that you could just, inside your 401k, sell off all your mutual funds and sit in cash effectively. Maybe make a point of interest or a half point of interest or 2% interest, depending on what time we're talking about here. Um, and you could wait. And when the market took its dump, you could then say, well, log into your account and, and go back into the same stuff you had before and not take the loss and realize a hell of a gain. You could trade inside your 401k effectively. Now, you'll say, well, I can still do that, Jack. I can move to different funds. But what they took away from my best guess, based on one time I polled this audience, and this is three years ago, about 80% of 401k plans between about 2008 and 2012 took away the cash option, whatever form that they had, and they replaced it with a government bond fund or a bond fund that was largely made of government bonds. What this did was ensure the United States government, there'd be a large block of money that in the case of a big downturn in the economy and people had to get rid of all their stocks because they were afraid, if they moved, they would all move into government debt instruments that would help prop the government up at the time that it needed it most. People said, but Jack, that was just a coincidence that it worked out that way. Duh, okay, sure. Well, now what they're saying is, you know, the uh, the 20 funds that you still have or 15 funds that you still have available, even without the dollar averaging fund, is, well, it's too much for you. You don't know what you're doing. So they're, they're paring these things down to where there's four to six choices inside your 401k. Like, you know, a growth in income, a bond fund, a fixed income, um, a, a mid cap and a large cap and like a, uh, uh, an index matching fund. Like that matches like the Dow Jones or the S&P. And the reason they say this is because so many employees are intimidated by all the options. In fact, what many people are doing now is your employer just enrolls you in your 401k for you. And then they just look at your age and they give you an age appropriate mix. They make all the decisions for you. Well, who's making those decisions? The people that are running the 401k plans, which are the investors themselves, are making those decisions. And what they're doing is they're taking over your retirement account to the point where they're going to be able to use the 401k plans of Americans 
to manipulate the market itself so they can make money on their their high speed you know day trading which is really like seconds trading right their their high frequency trading is what what this is going towards think about this you kind of have end up having like a remote control now if you can put the majority of Americans into a very small pigeonholed world and you also control the investment advisors and the funds themselves cuz largely those guys are tied in with the high frequency people too you know everything that's going on and you can basically print money for no value at whatsoever and you still have the now you have even greater manipulation to fund government debt instruments with America's retirement Americans retirement funds and what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you used to the idea of somebody does it for you you have no control you don't need to have control it's for smart people you don't need to worry about it just set it and forget it because the best thing for the people that make money on the stock market and on the equities markets on the 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 the, the, um, the commodities markets all of it is a large block of money that just sits there and takes it on the chin whenever you lose and that's what they're setting you up for and This is why I don't like 401k's. I just don't like them. Because I don't want somebody telling me how I can and cannot invest my retirement money. So this is my rule with 401k's. If the employer will match my contribution and it's a significant match, dollar for dollar, 50 cents on the dollar, that's a 50 to 100% return. In most instances, if we're talking 50 cents to a dollar on a match, I'm willing to max that out. Because the especially dollar for dollar, that's a that's a hell of a return. That's 10 years of return on day one on a 10% return plan. So I'll do that. But if they match that on the 3%, I'm not doing four. Whatever balance of that, I will then go into a Roth. And your 401k should be Roth, by the way. If they want to offer Roth, I'm even thinking about not doing what I just said. Always Roth, always Roth. Can't get any day why, but always Roth. Um, I'm going to go into a Roth IRA with any additional money I want to save for my retirement because now I have 100% full control. I want to buy a silver ETF because silver takes a dump, and I know there's a quick return on it. I can log into my E-Trade account or wherever I manage my you know, TD Ameritrade, whatever, and I can, inside my, my Roth IRA, invest my money that way. If there's a, you know, you can trade anything in there. If you can do it with a broker's account, you can trade it in there. So I don't want to give up that freedom. Now, if I've maxed out what I can do with a 401, I'm, I'm sorry, with an IRA, or any other form of deferred retirement account, I've maxed it out, and I have additional money that I want to tax defer, and I still qualify to be able to dump it into 401k, I'll do that. I'll, then, I'll, then I'll go back and, and start contributing more. But I... My problem is even if you like your 401k, these, they're continuing to change these. And that's why I just think it's a dangerous thing because you can be like, I love all the options I have in my 401k. And next year, when you have your, you know, your annual sit-in with HR and everybody else, and they tell you about all how, how much your health insurance go, is going up and all, they may say, here's Bill. Bill is our new administrator for our new 401k plan. And you may find that all of your existing investments have been moved into new investments without your approval. Most plans, they have the ability to do that. A lot of plans, what they do is they say you can't invest in these things anymore. If you're holding them, you can keep holding them. But once you trade out of them, you can't go back into them. And it's, it, it's just, again, it's manipulation and control. And what they're, what they're heading toward 
And you would think that the private companies don't want this, but they do. What they want is lots of money invested. Is government-run retirement accounts. You say, we already have that Social Security. No. We're going to have like a government IRA. This is something they've been working on for a long time. It seems with the Trump presidency, this thing kind of took a back, back seat for a while. Which is surprising to me because I think he'd be really, really receptive to screwing the American people this way. I know some of you love the guy. Sorry. That's just how I feel. But it may be a term two type thing. We see this thing come back. There was a lot of talk about these types of government-run equivalencies to a 401k or even a government takeover of 401ks during the Obama administration. Anyway, let's take another one. So Matt asked me about higher education. He says, you shared your thoughts about higher education from the perspective of teaching students. What are your thoughts about higher ed with regard to their dependence on federal grants to conduct research? Are they sustainable or worthy? Will it shift over the next stage, uh, next decade as much of the pending rewriting of higher ed and teaching facility? Cheers, Matt. Now, what I've said, if you're new to the show, is that I think a lot of higher education is going to be pared back. You're going to have colleges closing their doors. It's actually already happened. We've had recently a college that was in business for over 100 years put its entire campus up for sale and went bankrupt somewhere in New England. Um Maybe because they have too many colleges in New England. I don't know. But you're talking about a 100-year-old institution folding. And when I said this would happen, I started saying this about six years ago. People basically told me to shut up. I didn't know what I was talking about. You'll also see a lot of other universities that will survive, but they're going to get smaller. They're going to sell off you know, buildings and assets and, 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 and condense to a smaller size because less people are going to go to college. I mean, it's already happening. Enrollments have declined. For those who think I'm crazy here, enrollments in college have declined every year for the last eight years. And that's not that this year's enrollments were just less than they were nine years ago. This year's were less than last, which were less than a year before, which, and they've done that for eight consecutive years. That is, if you are an investor and your sector is doing that, you run like hell from it. That is not a good indicator of things to come. And in fact, in any sector, other than education, largely propped up by multiple faucets of government money, you would be into a full-on recession of that sector, if not a depression of that sector. See, we don't have to have a full-on depression or recession for a sector to be depressed or in recession. So if this were computer chips or cars or something like that, it, w it would already be, like, people would be, investors would be running away. But the government money keeps it propped up. Now, what Matt's asking is, well, what about all the money that goes into the government, from the government faucets for grants, for research and things like that? So, you know, the particle physics department gets a grant to research the effects of quarks on something or something like that, or a lot of defense money, a lot of agriculture grants, et cetera, go into to do this research. It will be one of the things that will actually keep the university system alive. Now, whether it's worth it, uh, it depends. My problem is that a lot of money goes into universities for what's called public research, but the public research ends up in the hands of private entities that end up with patents on it. You're going to tell me it's not possible. It happens all the time. A lot of public research ends up being taken away from the public by the government They'll say, well, this is important to defense. And so I don't like the way it's done in the first place. To me, 
the way this should work is that if you are at university of whatever and public money funds what you do, your research should be 100% available to anybody. Nobody should be able to patent it or license it at all. It was paid for with public money. It should be public property. I mean, to me, that's very, very simple. Um, what will happen over the next 10 years, though, I don't know in that sector. I do think it will remain far more valid than continuously selling degrees, which is what we're doing now. We don't even have – a lot of people come out of college now, they don't have an education. They buy a degree over four to five years. It's really what it is. It's four to five years of being indoctrinated into bullshit, and then at the end they give you a degree in return for you being in debt for the next 20 years. And, and that is happening more and more, but it's also happening less and less. The other side of this, though, is I think people really believe that the majority of grants and research funding that goes into universities is public money. A lot of it is. A lot of it isn't. A lot of it is drug companies, agriculture companies, etc. A lot of it's private money. And they fund the university. Then they get to dictate what the university teaches And then they get to co-opt 100% of the results. That happens all the time, too. And that will continue as well. Because they have these huge facilities and these huge laboratories. And it's one of the actual noble goals of the, the university system. It falls short of it, but the idea that we will take these pure academic settings, use them for research that benefits everybody, it's a great idea. But once you get industry and government collaborating on something, wonderful ideas turn into, well... Not so wonderful results. Uh, next up, this is from Ed. Ed says, home built home. I am most likely going to move soon. Currently, I have an old double Y. It isn't in bad shape, but needs a new roof. What's my exit strategy? I'm not going to set it on fire. It comes with 5.5 acres, um, so that should be help. When I bought it in 2012, banks were not willing to finance, even when I had an $80,000 job because it was in foreclosure. I was able to afford it with a small 20K personal loan at 10%, paid it off in a couple of years. So we've heard of a lot of folks that have converted sheds, like shed to house, uh, and converted storage containers, tiny homes, or built DIY homes, and there are issues with all of them. I do buy, I could buy a used trailer for 10 to 15k and have a cheap place to live without getting a 15-year mortgage. I'd be interested in your take on a home-built home, sticker otherwise, around a thousand square feet, room for normal items such as shower, bathtub, toilet, maybe composting. Normal kitchen items, dishwasher, gas stove, one to two bedrooms, small living room, small kitchen. I've seen videos of shed to house that are seventy to eighty thousand dollars. Surely we can build something similar without comprising, uh, compromising resellability or exit strategy. How would you sell a shed that was a home? Thanks. Please keep on doing what you're doing, Ed in South Carolina. Ed, I'm confused. I'm confused. I'm not really sure what you're asking me here. What is your exit strategy? You're going to move soon. Okay, that sounds like, how do I get rid of the one I already have? You do the basic repairs to it and you sell it. That's how you get rid of the one you already have, if you're moving. Or are you asking me, how do I replace what I have with something new to live on, on land that I already own? I'm really not sure, but let's just, I have to take a stab at this. So if I get this wrong, email me and tell me I got it wrong. If you want to sell the place you have and it needs a new roof, you put a new roof on it and you list it as real property. It's a mobile home. As long as it's fixed up decent and doesn't have any major problems with it, a qualified buyer should be able to get financing on it, including FHA. 
on a mobile home. I've been told you can't. I sold my mobile home to somebody who used an FHA loan. I bought my, my mobile home with a conventional 10% down loan with a mortgage. So it was in decent shape. So you make it in decent shape, you sell it. What it sounds to me like you're saying is you want to buy a new property and build on it. I will tell you that I don't know that I would recommend that unless you know why you're doing it. And I will tell you that it's actually really hard to beat a brand new, decent, small mobile home for what you want unless you live in an area where you're afraid to have a mobile home due to weather. I have seen some pretty decent little two- and three-bedroom mobile homes for between thirty and $40,000, and that's set-up cost. $30,000 mortgage for 15 years is $250 a month. I can't see putting $70,000 into a shed-to-house conversion. I can't see it. Um, if you're going to do a shed-to-house conversion, I think you're more into the lines of doing it yourself. And you always have the problem is, will this thing appraise as real property? And that's your exit strategy. So I need, I'm just going to say I need more clarification, Ed, as to what the hell you're actually trying to do. Because this reads like two different emails jammed together to one, and I'm not really sure. I will say this, though, as part of this, because there's, there's a lot of movement in this community toward buying a piece of land and building something super cheap and having no mortgage on it. Love the concept. Love the concept. But shed conversions, aircrete homes, etc. A lot harder to get financing on those. Years ago, when I moved back here to Texas from Arkansas, when I was still doing the podcast, so right about the middle of the time I've been doing this now, I found a geodesic dome home down near Arlington, Texas. Actually, Mansfield. Seven and a half acres. The kitchen was probably, if I wanted to just build the kitchen, and I mean the countertops, the cabinets, the appliances, probably $60,000 kitchen. With seven acres, beautiful black dirt, could have put ponds in everywhere, close location to the city. This is a house that you, and it was like stupid big. It was like 4,400 square feet. $264,000. It was more than I wanted to spend, but for that house, I was willing to do it. Well, we looked into getting financing on it. We could not get financing on it. We could not get a comparable appraisal. So it even was a stick-built house, but it was round. We couldn't get an appraisal, that would, and that's why it was so cheap. So you got to be really careful on your exit strategy. The one thing I can say for buying a smaller mobile home is if you take care of it, married to the land, it can appraise as real property. And it makes financing so much easier. Can you do a shed conversion and get it listed as real estate? It may be easier than the custom-built geodesic dome because at least it's square. Things that will probably aid with that, and I say probably because I'm guessing here, things like 2x6s instead of 2x4s in the walls, full insulation, um, electrical work, even if you don't have to because you live where there's no codes, electrical work signed off on, if not all done by a licensed electrician. Same with the plumbing. Etc. And you can do a lot of that. You do the work yourself, and you have them do the final tie-in and do an inspection for you, and they'll sign off on it. Um, but it's it does limit your exit strategy. So if that's what you're asking, I can go further. If you get back to me 
what do you mean? It says, you know, I am, I am likely going to move soon. Uh, so are you asking me how to handle your exit strategy there or to plan for your exit strategy on your next property? What do you really want to do? What's your budget? What are you, what, what are you looking to buy as far as land? How much are you going to spend on that? Because there's a lot of better ways than what I see going on. Um, metal steel buildings that are converted like kind of like barnuminiums seem like a really cost-effective way to go a lot of times as well. Log cabin kits, etc. All of that stuff makes, maybe it costs a little more up front, but it can still be done very affordably, and it leaves you a much better exit strategy. Because these people that are putting 20, uh, sorry, like 50, 60, $70,000 into tiny homes, I don't see them ever getting their money out of that. Ever getting their money out of that. It just doesn't make any sense. So that's the best I can do on that, Ed. I'd love to hear from you and get some clarification on what you're actually trying to do here. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Let me remind you real quick here at the end, we do have the MSB on sale, like I said at the beginning today. Uh, MSB is on sale for $30 a year. Discount code is TURKEY. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and use the discount code when you sign up. And uh, the other way you can support us is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. I got something kind of special for you guys today for T-SPAS. As you guys know, um, I only recommend items on T-SPAS, which are usually reviews of Amazon products that I actually own and use. And this is the Moroccanov Companion Heavy-Duty Fixed Blade Knife as our item of the day today. I'm bringing it around because this is a $25 knife. If this knife sold for $40 to $50, I don't think anybody would say it's not worth what it sells for. It's a wonderful carbon steel blade. It's a great handle. It's a great pattern. This is a Swedish knife made, you know, Swedish steel. It is a fantastic knife, except it doesn't sell for $40 to $50. It sells for $25. But I check a lot of the stuff I recommend to see when they go on sale. It's on sale today. $14. For just one of the best bushcrafting knives you can get your hands on. $14. Bucks. Um, I have talked to knife makers. They said, I can't make that knife for $14. Not I can't make it and sell it for $14. I can't buy the material to make a knife like that for $14. Raw material alone. So I really recommend you take a look at this thing and consider adding it to your collection. This is one of those things that's so inexpensive, it's worth adding a couple of them to what you own um, to have a quality knife that sells for the price of a cheap knife. And, you know, we don't, I don't really talk about Christmas much until after Thanksgiving. I'm one of those people. But man, 14 bucks, there's not an outdoorsman on your list that would be like, oh, I don't know why you got me this thing. Anybody that gets this knife is going to love it. There's one complaint I've seen about Moroccanive or Mora knives, um, and many other knives in a similar situation on Amazon that you can tell people just don't know what they're buying. And that is, it rusted so fast because it's carbon steel stupid. So when you're using a carbon steel blade, the best thing you can do is make sure you keep some, when you clean your knife, use your knife, et cetera, put some oil on your blade. The even better thing to do is put a patina on your blade using vinegar. And it'll make, instead of this nice shiny blade, you'll have kind of a dull gray, almost like you've blued a gun color to your knife. It will not make it rust proof, but it will make it a lot more rust resistant. And what I like to do with any of these carbon steel knives, I do a patina on them, and then I use frog lube, the stuff they use for guns, 
It seems to stay on them a lot better, and they don't rust at all once you do that. At least mine don't. And they tend to develop more and more patina over time as you use them. You can do it with a lot of things. Anything acidic, like vine uh, vinegar works, like I said, also lemon juice, etc. Mustard. You can put mustard on like a paste, and you get kind of a really cool, almost Damascus-looking patina with mustard. These are a fun knife to do stuff like that with because they're 14 bucks. The way I generally do it is I just suspend them in a, in a glass of vinegar. And it's a really cool little chemical process to watch happen. Again, you'll lose that brilliant, shiny look to them. But all of my carbon steel moras and most every carbon steel knife I have, I do a vinegar patina on them. So it's a fun little project to do, and it's an inexpensive knife. Check them out again. It's the Mora Companion Heavy Duty Knife. So the lighter version is uh, normally sells for $14.25, and it's selling for $14.25 right now. But you can get the heavy-duty version for $14. Bucks. Really a great deal. And remember, when you shop on tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Next up for our song of the day. This is a terrible song by a great artist. Why am I playing it? This is the Music Business Week. So all songs about the music business itself. This is by Van Morrison. Yeah, that Van Morrison, like brown-eyed girl Van Morrison. The story's too long to tell. The episode went a little bit long, and I want to say right here at the end, I am not on my game today, and I apologize. This is not the best episode I have ever done. I will try to do a better episode for you tomorrow. I've fumbled through a few parts. Uh, there's some things going on in the house today that have caused that, between the dogs, the stupid brand-new chair of mine squeaking, etc., um, phone ringing even though I had it on silent, lots of stuff. No excuses, though. I think I'm still just getting back in the groove after you know being off for a week with the workshop. Uh, so I apologize for that. And that's part of why the episode went longer today. Um, but Van Morrison has been, always been one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, uh, artists. I didn't know that he has this whole background where he got tied in with a record label called Bang Records that was tied in with the mob. And when he wanted to move, he had a contractual obligation to them. And he was basically threatened by the mob not to leave. And you can I have the whole story linked to you. You can read it. It's fascinating, but it's just long. And But his contractual obligation was for quantity, how many songs he had to write and produce, not quality. So he did 31 songs in one day, 31 songs in one day that all sucked on purpose. And they actually got worse as he went. And it was like a, little, like a middle finger on his way out to leave these people. And he actually moved geographically to be at less of a physical threat over this shit. Uh, this is one of those songs, and it's called Dum Dum George. They were all put together in a compilation called the Contractual Obligation Compilation. <laughs> so this song sucks, but it kicks off this week. Here you go, Van Morrison, probably one of the uh, worst things you've ever heard by him. But I'll tell you what, if you look into this group of songs, there is worse. With that, it's been – maybe that's why we have this today. Maybe it's just symbiotic. This is Van Morrison as worst. I feel like Jack was not at his worst today, but I was certainly not at my best. Anyway, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. This is a story about Dumb Dumb George. We came up to Boston one Sunday afternoon. New York City 
was freaky. And he wanted to record me. And I said, George, you're dumb. And he said, I know. Why do you think I make so much money? I want to do a record that'll make number one. Dumb, dumb, 